We're spending two weeks in this text that Heather read. If you haven't been with us, we're looking at spiritual disciplines, which we're calling abiding practices because of the emphasis in John 15 on abiding. And the reason we're in John 15 is we're making our way this year and next through Romans in sections. If you've been away at school or you're in visiting family, John 15 is our application weeks, taking all that doctrine we got in Romans chapter 6 through 8 and putting it into practice. And we'll come back to Romans in January. We'll start back in chapter 9 in January. Last Sunday and today, we've been talking about prayer as an abiding practice, and we've been emphasizing not so much how to pray, instructions on how to pray. We've, we've looked at it more from the angle of how God conditions us to pray, how he cultivates, since we've got this uh, cultivation imagery, vine and branches and vineyard and, and vine dresser here in John 15, how God cultivates prayer action in us and from us, and what prayer as an abiding practice is for. And we talked a lot about this last week, that as an abiding practice, as a spiritual discipline, if you will, prayer is really for us to seek God for himself more than the things we seek from him. Of course, we're going to seek things from God. We're going to present hundreds of thousands of requests to God and our prayers over a lifetime. We seek many things from him. We've been taught by Jesus to do so. Jesus taught us how to pray. Apostles show us how to pray, and prophets before them and psalmists show us how to pray, to bring our needs and our desires to God, and, and, and to not get rid of desires necessarily, but to cruciform them, as we talked about in Romans 6-8, through that our, that our desires shape are shaped by him and fit his design. Talked about that some last week in these verses. Again, today, verses 7 through 12 and verses 16 and 17. Same verses as last Sunday, but again, the imagery of the vine and the branches. Uh, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. This is about cultivation. Jesus did not invoke this imagery simply for its practical power. Uh, how's the best way I can get this teaching across? I'll put it in an image that all of my disciples understand. They, they all are familiar with the way that vines, uh, grape vines and vineyards were tended back in the day. There is a practical import, certainly. But there's also his unique personal power tied up in this imagery. I haven't yet mentioned this to you, that in the time of Jesus, the symbol, you know, all nations have symbols, and the symbol for the nation of Israel in the time of Jesus was the vine. Now it's the Star of David. We think of the Star of David and, and the Israeli flag. But back in Jesus' time, the vine symbolized the nation. Why? Israel was a planting of the Lord to bear fruit for him. So when Jesus says, back up in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Back up in verse 1, I am the true vine. What is he saying? It's not just imagery for the sake of the point he wants to make about our usefulness, which is the point of the passage. The imagery is weighted with greater meaning. When Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine, he is saying, I am the true Israel. In the sense that he is who God's people are supposed to be. 
but cannot be due to our sin. Jesus applies the symbol for the nation to himself. Now look again at verses 7 and 16 where we get this uh, emphasis on prayer. Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And he says the same thing in the latter part of verse 16. I've appointed you to go and bear fruit so that whatever you ask, end of verse 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We talked about the whatever aspect of this last Sunday, that even if our whatever is shallow, even if it's wrong-headed, if we seek the Lord for anything, if we seek him, he will meet us there and from there cultivate in us a desire for more of him, not just the thing that we're seeking from him. And this is what, this is what distinguishes prayer as an abiding practice. I'm not just coming and asking him for the things I need and desire and, and putting all of that before him, although I am. I'm also seeking him for himself. We also last Sunday went back to Romans 8 to reemphasize the prayer ministry of the Spirit of God. I want you to see as we go through this last week and this week that we have a lot going for us when we pray. God is for us in the person of Jesus and the Spirit of God we see in Romans chapter 8 going back there last week. The Spirit of God prays along with us. Remember that? With groanings too deep for words. The Spirit searches the heart, knows the mind, and knows how to take things to the Lord on our behalf. And so I told you last week, even if we, if we think we might be praying the wrong thing, we don't have to worry that God's going to throw that at us because, well, you asked for it. He's not that kind of father. Even if someone prays against us, you don't have to worry. You ever had that experience? You ever have somebody pray against you? Maybe this is just an occupational hazard for me, uh, being that I'm uh, something of a professional Christian. And I know this flies in the face of our text. You know, I mean, what is, what is, what is the, the essence of Jesus' teaching to his disciples? Love one another. Verse 12, verse 17, it's repeated here in our passage. I know a husband, uh, a friend who says his uh, wife has threatened at times to sick God on him uh, if he's not loving her as Christ loved the church. But that's not praying against him. She's actually praying for him. Uh, I have been prayed against uh, more than once by people along the way that I've hurt or frustrated and, and at times it's come to my attention. And you think, well, what do you do with that? Well, you know, you get upset, you get aggravated, you, you, you think a lot of things you wish you didn't think, but then you turn to the Lord with that and you say, you know, Lord, this could work for my pruning. In, in fact, why don't you take what's being prayed against me and and use it for, for my pruning because that's good. Cut away from me whatever there is in me that would cause anyone to feel uh, they have to oppose me before your throne of grace. Now, hopefully that's never happened to you, but if it has, turn it into pruning. It still cuts, but it won't feel like you're being cut in two. You know, pruning can hurt. I was listening to a British preacher on this passage a few weeks back. I had not sought uh, him out on this passage. It just happened a, a podcast 
that I listened to a collection of uh, sermons the Gospel Coalition posts, and and one was from Sam Albury from London, and and he he had a marvelous message on this passage. He said there it, there are times in pruning it feels like you want to say, God, you are killing me. Pruning hurts, even though it's for our good. And 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 actually, I th- I think we encounter a lot of our pruning in abiding prayer. In other words, I, I think God begins to surface when we seek him. He begins to surface where in us is shallow and, and what in us is, is wrongly directed. And he prunes that we may be more fruitful. So we're looking at prayer this week and last as an abiding practice. As an abiding practice, meaning that we come to seek God more for himself than the thing that we're asking him for, the thing that we, we want him to do for us. And you know, sometimes we, we want certain things from God so much and we, we, we plead him with him for this and, and that and, and God uh, sometimes he may prune that from us and that's a very painful thing to undergo. But if he does, it's because our usefulness is at stake. Now, be that as it may, prayer as an abiding practice Seeking God for himself more than just the thing I want from him or the thing he's already given me that I don't want to mess up. (laughs) I want it to be fruitful. He's given you the spouse you wanted. He's given you the job you wanted. He's, He's given you the opportunity that you were seeking. And we said we would take this in two directions. And last week we we camped in how God uses suffering to cultivate us to seek him for himself, how God draws us into himself more in prayer through things like loneliness and and loss. These are sufferings in which God tunes us to himself, to to seek him more for himself than whatever else we seek from him. And in some ways it's a little bit it's it's a little bit easier to talk about suffering because we almost expect in suffering that we're going to be drawn to the Lord. I want to give you the other side of it today, an area where where uh, a lot of people don't think uh, our our need for the Lord is pronounced, but it actually is, and that's in success. Success. What I mean by success? Another place God cultivates our seeking Him for Himself is when you're doing well. By success, I mean if you do something that people praise you for or maybe are even in a little awe of you for, some creativity you have, some talent, some gifting, that's success. If you gain power vocationally or civically or, or, or socially, if you have influence with people, if you, if you get a name, these are successes. If you advance your career or you're on a great winning team, the lore of that team, the the banners hanging, uh, that's success. If you have a network and you can pull strings and you have access to people and places, that's success. If you gain responsibility over others, if you have resources, if you have a noble spouse, if you have high-achieving kids, if you're considered to be superlatively gifted or just use your gifts well, all of this and more besides, we count as success. Now, 
for Christians, faithfulness to God is, is ultimate success. Whatever successes we know in, in here and now and in life and living, faithfulness to God is success. We're not going to commit the error of prosperity theology in that that rewards faithfulness with material abundance. Not this side of the cross. In the new covenant arrangement, the emphasis is on our spiritual blessings in Christ, and we have an embarrassment of riches in spiritual blessings in Christ. The New Testament is emphatic on this. But God does give gifts and talents. God gives power and influence to some. He gives to some resources and connections. He gives it, he sends it, he allows it, he tests with it, all of the above. And and he does so for our faithfulness, for our fruitfulness. There's a proverb. It's Proverbs uh, 18.16. That's the address. You don't have to turn there. It's a simple line. Proverbs 18.16 says, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great ones. But many who've had that experience have found it to be very humbling. There's a lot of people who who look at that kind of experience, a man's gift makes room for him, brings him before the great, and, and, and especially in youth, will say, well, I even want that. You know, they seek that and they climb and they work hard for that. But then you get there. You get there and you realize, wow, there are a lot of people who could be here ahead of me. There are a lot of people who could be here instead of me. And there's always somebody who gets higher and, and, and greater and, and better than you. Someone shared with me this week by email a devotional on the Proverbs wherein the author made the point that success actually brings its own cares, its own burdens, its own stresses. Still, a man's gift makes room for him, the proverb says, brings him before the great. That proverb is saying God may give success to you in a way that is very public, that others notice and even others at the top. But John 15 says he prunes those who are fruitful for him. The success itself can be the theater for pruning. What if God does for you beyond your expectations? I never thought I would pastor a church like this one. Never saw that coming. In fact, uh, when I stepped in this position a little over 11 years ago, I've been on staff almost 16 years total in March. It'll be 16 years. And I walked into this position as senior pastor with a lot of anxiety, which has since turned into fear. Uh, Let me explain that. There's a difference between fear and anxiety. Anxiety is really about control. And what I've learned in 11 years in this position is there's really little, very little I can control, even in a place of, of influence. That doesn't mean I cannot lead, but leading and controlling are not the same thing. Unfortunately, they get conflated in certain contexts, but they're not the same things. And once I learned how little I could control and realized I was, I was also gaining longevity, Uh, And and there are certain fruits that come with that. Uh, My anxiety occupying this spot began to go away, but it was replaced by this wash of fear, which doesn't leave me. But it's a good kind of fear. It's the fear of success. 
It's the fear that in succeeding, I stop seeking the Lord. You get long in a church position, and it's really easy to set it on cruise, and nobody checks on you anymore. They just assume. They want to assume the best of you, and they just assume the best of you. People don't ask you the hard questions when you're 16 years in like they asked you when you were two years in or three years in. I call this a healthy fear because it's the fear that in succeeding, and I'm just using myself as an example, in succeeding I begin to presume on what I've been given. But, you know, this may be uh, apropos to, to, to your vocation, just putting it in a vocational context. You're the business owner, and so, uh, and so certain things you could, you could do and get away with. A stewardship requires tending and working ongoing. It's a, it's a field. It's a cultivation. It doesn't, it does, it has to, you have to keep working with it. Or healthy fear because I don't want to hide some sin because of your goodwill. Again, putting this in my own daily context, my own vocation, it's what I know. To say this to you, nothing has driven me to prayer seeking God for himself quite like everyone speaking well of me. It scares me to death. And not that everyone speaks well of me, you understand. And now I thank God for those who don't because of the same reason. It drives me to more of God. Suffering has certainly driven me to prayer, but so has success. Because there's nothing quite like succeeding to make you realize how small you really are. It's just, it's counterintuitive, it's inverse proportion, but this has been my experience with it. There's nothing like success to make you realize how much you really are your own worst enemy. I think of Samuel confronting King Saul back in the Old Testament. Remember his confrontation? You were once small in your own eyes. That's an epitaph over a lot of ministries. Because the longer you go in this particular chosen field, and again, I'm just talking to you of what I know, which is ministry, you, the more you see guys falling off the platform along the way. If success doesn't humble you, then you start thinking that you're kind of a big deal and indispensable. But God is the only big deal. God is the only one who's indispensable to the work. And some way, somehow, he will remind you that he opposes the proud and, give, and gives grace to the humble. When everyone's commending you, when everyone's telling you how well they think you're doing, how great you are, how much you mean to them, how important your work is, that success should send you to prayer as an abiding practice as much as any suffering does. They asked Billy Graham, Billy Graham passed this year. They asked Billy Graham, what was the key to longevity in ministry? And this is what he said, I walk scared. I walk scared. Graham was used by God in the 20th century almost, almost apostolically. But he realized his worst enemy in life was himself succeeding. Because in success, when people are praising and appreciating you and seeking you out and want more of what you do, what happens is you want to abide in that. It's intoxicating. It's like tending the vineyard and drinking it up. You come to love the fruits more than the one 
you're bearing them for. Success can consume you in such a way that you've got to keep it going. Or you've got to keep it coming, all the, the praise that you're getting for what it is that you, you do. When the, the, the temptation in success is that you get comfortable in your palace. I'm thinking of David, the David we find in 2 Samuel 11, the Bathsheba chapter. He's, he's celebrated, he's comfortable in his palace, and he's halfway through his reign when the spectacular sins begin to unfold. That comfort, it caused him to make provision for the flesh. That's Romans chapter 13, verse 14. We'll come to it in a few months. I really fear that. I fear that because it's so much easier for that to to happen when you're succeeding. The temptation in success, when when you've got power, influence, you're celebrated for some talent, some, some gift. And I'm talking to a room full of successful people. The temptation in that is is you get presumptive in a way such that others, they're there to to be used by you or they're there to to hold you up or you indulge some sin you now have time for because, again, others want to believe the best about you and they give you such a wide berth and it's really for failure. Success is a great hiding place. I was uh, visiting with an old friend recently, and we were talking about how the ministry, which he's no longer in, he said, you know, when I was in ministry, it was such a great place to hide. Ministry success. Guys hide up in that in plain view of everybody. But it, it turns into so much keeping up appearances. Let me put this in terms of... Uh, External gifts and internal grace, not as a contrast. They complement. External gifts and internal grace complement. But what happens, not just to ministers, it's the vocation I know, so I'm speaking to it, but what happens to anyone who experiences success in, in whatever endeavor of life, and they know Christ. They know Christ and they experience success their star rises in a small theater or, or a large canopy, whatever. They, they do pretty well, and, and people notice and compliment and, and, and affirm them and approve of them. What happens is there's this confusion between external gifts and internal grace. Your success is coming from your external gifts in, in operation, how God has equipped you, how he's placed you to be useful in the world, to bless Others, external gifts need internal grace in order for the user to use what's given rightly and humbly. But internal grace has to be cultivated. If you're all about just your external gifts and you're not cultivating the internal grace through abiding practices like prayer, wherein you come to realize over and over, I have this cultivated sense that God could use somebody else. And whatever I bring to whatever it is I'm doing and blessing and, 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 and prospering, whenever I share with younger pastors, I use the image Chuck Swindoll used with us in seminary. We asked him, how do you deal with ego? And back in the day when we asked him this, he was the, the known quotient. He was the preacher everybody listened to. Everybody read his books. 
He had the ear of, of the evangelical church in America. And I've never forgotten what he said sitting in his office. He said, I know what a thin thread this all hangs on. He said, it's like a piano suspended by a thread. And he said, it doesn't take a lot of foolishness from me to snap that. And he said, so I don't wrestle with ego because my ego is under that piano. (laughs) I've never forgotten that. And I share it often with younger pastors. God could give your opportunities to somebody else, but he gave them to you. That means he wants to use you. He's entrusted to you and, and to me the responsibility over whatever it is in your life. That job, those employees, that classroom, that ministry, that creative expression, that family. People will praise you and appreciate you if you do it well. But the classic mistake in succeeding is that we mistake the operation of grace with the operation of gifts. You hear what you consider to be great teaching and you think, well, there is a really godly man. But it could be a man just using his external gifts well with no cultivation of internal grace. And so he's really doing it for, well, for affirmation for himself. He's doing it to shore up his insecurity. And that guy will usually flame out. He'll usually cave in. There's a shelf life. There's an expiration date when you're faking it. You're not cultivating the internal grace. If you depend on, I'll put it this way, if you depend on affirmation to fill you, what you find is you can never be affirmed enough. It's like uh, indulging lust. The more you indulge it, the object of your desire can never be naked enough for you. Let me give you two never statements and we'll wrap it up. Two never takeaways, never statements. The first is, never take the idea that if I could just succeed here, if I could just get that, then everything would be fine. Never take that idea. If I could just get to here, if I could just have that, everything would be great for me. Don't take that idea because the heart always wants more. Which is why if God does take you there, if he gives you that, you go higher and faster than you thought you'd ever go, well, what's the point? The point is that so when you arrive at the destination, you're more dependent upon him. I used to think when I was younger and I would listen to stories about someone would come to faith and God redeemed them out of this derelict, wasteful life. We love to hear these kinds of stories because they're so, they're so transformative. You know, I was doing this and I didn't have a clue and, and I was into all this junk and then God broke in and he turned me to himself and now here I am, you know, serving him. And, and I would hear that and I would, I would hear that as someone who was a Christian as a child. I would hear that as someone who'd, who'd never not loved Jesus, to put it in the Alabama double negative. God had my attention and affection since I was little. But it wasn't until I got into adulthood that I realized, why did he get me early? He got me early because of all the damage I would have done if he had not. I am convinced that if I had not known early grace, what an incredibly selfish, damaging jerk of a man I would be. I would live completely for myself and I would make a mess of that. 
if God had not turned me early to his grace. My testimony is of a preserving grace that didn't let me meet myself in the condition I would have if he had not brought me near early. Never take the idea that if you could just get to here, if you could just have that, this little taste of success, this little things working out, then things are going to be good for you. Your heart will always want more. That's why we've got to seek God for himself. He's got to be enough for us. Easy to talk about, harder to do, I know. The second, never. Never take the idea that all we have to do is obey and everything will go right for us. This is just oversimplism. People mean well when they say that. You know, Christians will say, obedience is how God counts success. That's, the, that's where you pursue, young man. You go for obedience. You go for faithfulness. And that's true. It's very true. Faithfulness is success as God counts success. But God has been known to take his people on journeys of faith and risk, obedience that costs and you can be great in the kiddie pool of obedience. And he sort of throws you out in the deep end and suddenly you're forgetting to, to swim. He prunes the fruitful person, already useful to him, so that he might be even more so. I remember uh, being with uh, Wayne Grudem a few years back. He's a pretty significant theologian. And he was leading a seminar that, that I was part of and we got to go out to dinner with him, about 10 of us. And at the dinner, we just, as pastors will do, pastors who stay in this a long time will do, we start talking about how do you do it? How have you stayed faithful? And now <coughs> Wayne Grudem at that point was in his last trip. He had his Parkinson's was advancing, and he said this is the last. He came to Birmingham to Beeson to be with us, and he said this is uh, the last time I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm venturing out. Uh, doctors have said I don't need to travel anymore. And he said he and his wife were, were taking a kind of relational inventory. And they realized that everyone they knew who loved Jesus deeply had navigated some really hard things 100%. Everybody they knew. Whom God had used, who, who, who had been just deeply loyal and, and loving to the Lord. They had all gone through some really hard things. The most successful people in the kingdom simultaneously faithful to God and humble about it, they were not kept from the most hurtful things. It's not your ticket out of trouble. It, it can be your, your invitation to a higher dialogue with God in trouble. See, faithfulness, fruitfulness, what this passage is committing, I mean, even prayerfulness, it can be painful. It was painful for God himself in person. We get cut back. The passage says we get pruned, but what happened to Jesus? He got cut off. We get trellised or we get pruned, but he was allowed to, to wither up, as it were. He became poor so that we might know an embarrassment of riches in every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. I heard someone say this way, our fruitfulness will never cost us more than it cost Jesus Christ to be fruitful on our behalf. That's beautifully stated. He was cut off that we might only ever be cut back, not cut off. He was cut off for us. And the cutting back can hurt. But we need this at times. 
particularly the advance and achieve crowd that we are because we'll come to depend on our success and we'll seek more of that for its own sake and its rewards more than we will seek the only one who can sustain us in all times of life. The joyful times are sweeter and the painful times are not so as devastating as they could be when we come to seek the Lord for his own sake. The cutting back, it hurts, but the cutting off would hurt so much more. And Jesus takes that on our behalf. But we need cutting back lest we come to depend on our connections. Think because I know these people or I, I have these gifts, these resources, I'm safe from betrayal. Nothing will, you know, we live like that. We think because we, we live in the safe neighborhood and we went to this school and, and we drive this car with the crash rating and our kids are, are pretty, you know, you've got the kid that's, that's, uh, that's agile and, and put a ball in his hands, you know, and she's got a, a beautiful voice, put a microphone, and, and we think, we think that, that we will never experience pain because of their success. But we're, we're deceiving ourselves. You think people will always appreciate me. I'm invaluable. This is what we crave for more and more and more in success. This is the drug of success. To think, to know we're invaluable, we're indispensable, we're essential equipment. <laughs> but only God is that. Only God is big enough to contain the expectations of that. It's more than enough. It needs to be more than enough for us that we're valuable to him. Again, it's easier to talk about. It's harder to cultivate. But this is what you're cultivating in prayers and abiding practice. Make it such, Lord, that that my satisfaction in you, my dependency on you, is rich and deep and nourished. Whatever successes in life that I get to enjoy, you get to enjoy, let's prize most of all that it's because of grace, not our gifts, though they are many in this room, but it's because of his grace that we're valuable to our Savior who loves us and who cultivates us to love him and to seek him more for himself than the things that he gives. This is the call to abide. Would you stand with me? And let's pray. For the privilege of prayer, Lord, we thank you. And for the work that you fit us for, the gifts you've given, the talents you've bestowed, the opportunities, the open doors, the provisions you've made for us. Lord, as we exercise these things, walk through those doors, do what you've given us to do for the lives that we have here. Lord, we don't want to be wasteful. We don't want to be uh, negligent. But we also don't want to not be pruned because we know that you're pruning. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes we're, we're holding what needs to be pruned out there and saying, Lord, take this from me. But sometimes we clutch things and we say, I've got to have more of this. I've got to get there or here before I'll feel satisfied. And so, Lord, teach us to, 
Teach us how to discern our own ambition and to pursue and to excel and, and to avail ourselves of every chance we have to advance and achieve, but to not live for that. Lord, that can be such a, a funny line. So, as the psalmist prayed, teach us to number our days aright, that we get a heart of wisdom, and that we, we live our lives developing a satisfaction in you that is deeper than any good success we know and that we enjoy our successes and are thankful for the placements and the opportunities and the affirmations and encouragements that come. But what we really want most of all is to be useful to you and to know in that that we are satisfied with who you are and what you've done for us. And that we keep coming back to that over and over and over again like a boomerang. Thank you for hearing us when we pray. Thank you for making the way clear. You were cut off, Lord Jesus, so that we are only ever cut back. And we thank you for that reality, that truth that sustains us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.